0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Amanda Joyce Hall. On this show, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with one of the great founders of Black Studies, Dr. Abdul Al-Kalamat, whose many writings have assessed and reassessed the growth of the field over the last five to six decades. Today, we discuss his new book, The Future of Black Studies, which is currently out with Pluto Press. Dr. Akalamat earned his PhD from the University of Chicago in sociology and has gone on to write more than 20 books and hundreds of articles. Among them is his 1984 book, The Canonical Text, Introduction to African-American Studies, A People's College Primer, published through the People's College Press. His recent works include The History of Black Studies, published in 2021, and Dialectics of Liberation, the African Liberation Support Movement, published earlier this year. Dr. Dr. Akalamat has led much of this intellectual work at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, where he is currently a professor emeritus of African American Studies and Information Services. Many call him a comrade because of his work and activism during the most pivotal, pivotal Black struggles of the 20th century. Dr. Kalamat should be recognized for his contributions to the freedom movement, the Black Power and Pan-Africanist movements as the former chair of the Chicago SNCC chapter, as a founding member of the African Liberation Support Committee, and as the founder of myriad Black cultural and educational organizations. Alongside Dr. Vincent Harding, Akalamat was one of the founders of the Institute of the Black World, which accelerated anti-colonial politics domestically and internationally through research, publishing, and organizing. Building on this experience, Dr. Akalamat went on to establish the People's College, the Black Radical Congress, which led to Chicago's Community University, the Illinois Council for Black Studies, and the Organization of Black American Culture. Between his organizing and his scholarship, Dr. Akalimat, has truly lived a life of Black Studies. It's an honor to have him here on our show, and I hope that you enjoy our discussion. Dr. Abdul Akalimat, welcome to the show. Congratulations on your new book, The Future of Black Studies. I'm excited to continue this conversation that we started earlier this year, actually, when we discussed your previous book, The History of Black Studies, at the African-American Intellectual History Society's annual meeting earlier. Um, earlier in the year. Um, So it is a great honor and privilege to have you here to discuss the future of Black Studies.
0: Thank you, I'm I'm so pleased to be here with you.
1: Wonderful. Well, let's jump into our first question. Dr. Akalamat, I'm sure many of us want to know about those early days um, in the founding of Black Studies. So can you please tell us about yourself, and your journey and your path to this thing that became Black Studies that has um, really been the subject of so much of your intellectual life?
0: Uh, yeah, thank you for the question. I, uh, I think the the best way for me to answer the question is to say that there've been three main influences.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: First is family, second is generation, and third is personal experience. Now with regard to family, on my father's side, uh, I grew up with the sort of legacy uh, conversation, the oral history of my great-great-grandfather, who was the first African-American to found legally found a town in the United States that became a station on the Underground Railroad. And so we grew up with that story, and that sort of helped form our identity as a uh, outside of what was called a mark of oppression or, you know the way in which black people were historically beat down. Uh, We, on the other hand, had that memory of the family that raised us up. Mm -hmm. Then my Aunt Thelma, my father's sister, was a uh, political activist, but also a cultural activist. And so she was very close and worked with Margaret Burroughs in forming two important institutions in Chicago, the Southside Community Arts Center, Mm -hmm. which is a WPA project, which still continues to exist, and then the DuSable Museum, the African American History Museum. So I grew up, uh, you know, knowing Margaret and all the people involved in in, in those activities. Then on my mother's side, uh, my aunt uh, was one of the, actually my mother's father was one of the early members, black members of the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. And uh, my aunt was very active in the, uh, not only in the party, but also the National Negro Congress
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and the Steelworkers Organizing Committee. And so, and they were friends with Paul Robeson and Du Bois and so on. Yeah. So I had those kind of influences coming from family.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And like Thelma, in her house was full of African art and uh, and uh, uh, other uh, paintings, et cetera, et cetera, from her contemporaries. So we had that, that sort of uh, influence. Then in terms of generation... I was part of that generation uh, born, you know, at the time and a little bit after World War II, born in 1942. uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, was impacted by the Emmett Till murder, as as much of my generation was. And I became involved in SNCC, Student Nonviolent Mm -hmm. Coordinating Committee. And so that gave uh, sort of a political uh, understanding. Uh, particularly as <clears throat> we began to <clears throat> better understand this country going through the Mississippi Summer Project and uh, the, uh, the the murder of the uh, comrades who were in Mississippi and so on.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then in terms of my personal experience, of course, this whole question of, uh, of institutional racism. I mean, when I entered graduate school, for example, uh, there were very few. I, I, I was the second... Uh, black person in the department of sociology at the university of Chicago in graduate school. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we sort of, some of us found each other uh, on campus, but what really made my experience different is that I had an equal uh, engagement in the community so that uh, I was very much uh, educated by a connection to people like Hoyt Fuller who was the editor of Negro Digest and Mm -hmm. Conrad Kent Rivers, and the three of Mm. us formed uh, OBASI, the Organization of Black American Culture, and that led to the Wall of Respect. So I had that uh, experience at the University of Chicago studying sociology, but I also had the experience of being with the previous generation of Black intellectuals and rooted in the community. So those three influences, the family, generation, and, and my personal experience... But the interesting thing about uh, my personal experience is that there were individuals that uh, I connected with, uh, like uh, in in one way or another, uh, that helped guide me. Uh, and uh, part of the peers were Russell Adams, who became uh, head of Black Studies at Howard, Jeff Donaldson, who became uh, dean of the uh uh, humanities and Arts at Howard, uh, and uh, in SNCC, I was able to, through Julian, connect with his father, Horace Mann Bond. In fact, when I moved to Atlanta, uh, I stayed it with, in Horace Mann Bond's house. He had a bedroom in his basement next to his office. That's where I stayed when I first moved to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So these personal experiences were really um, formative for me. Uh, because Mm -hmm. it anchored me in understanding the value of Black intellectual history.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Because the beginning of Black Studies, not only was it an anti-racist impulse, Mm -hmm. it was the basis on which we rediscovered Black intellectual history. Mm -hmm. And uh, that became then the foundation of what we now call Black Studies.
1: Oh, wonderful. Um... we're going to have to come back. You're going to have to have you back for a separate interview about um, about uh, sort of all of the organizing that you did, actually. I would love to learn about the early SNCC days from you, um, as well as Obasi um, and the other um, organizations that you were involved with. But that actually segues to our next question, which is um, about how you thought about your, uh, your work, your work, um, in Black liberation organizing and also internationally your involvement um, in African liberation organizing. How did that inform your early scholarship um, and the ways that you thought about the purpose and the function of Black study?
0: Well, of course, the the main point is that uh, Black studies was simultaneously an anti-racist uh, activity, meaning we were reacting to the uh, some subtle and sometimes not so subtle institutional racism that we were confronting in the university, mm-hmm. even if it was the, the, uh, the, the, the racism of silence about the Black experience. Mm-hmm. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, it was uh, the fact that as intellectuals, we were uh, connected to the Black community. And therefore, not only was it a, uh, uh, a, a motion negating the, the, uh, the negation of ourselves, it was an affirmation. And therefore, what's really important is we struggled over the concept of audience. Mm-hmm. Because being on a campus, the audience is the campus. And mm-hmm. we uh, added to that the audience of the community.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so when we were engaged in the struggle, we were then reading and writing as intellectuals to contribute to the struggle. Now at the global level, what's interesting is that uh, we were in effect learning from the global experience. So the history of the Pan-African movement, for example, uh, was really instructive because particularly the fifth Pan-African Congress that took place in Manchester, England, uh, because there people gathered, developed aspirations and a plan, and then fanned out and actually implemented uh, the struggle for independence from colonialism. So you mm-hmm. had both no theory and practice. And so for me, uh, the uh, deepening my understanding of W.B. Du Bois, Kwame Nkrumah, and Malcolm X really fundamental. And uh, like many others of my generation, it's been a lifelong journey in learning from those uh, three uh, people, Mm -hmm. uh, along with many others. But I mean, those three were really, really great. The other is that uh, I participated in something called the uh, International Book Fair of Radical Black and Third World Books. Mm -hmm. It took place in London. Yeah. And it was, for me, it was the equivalent of the Pan-African Congresses, because so many people from the continent of Africa, from the Caribbean, from throughout Europe, and for that matter, Latin America and Asia, came together, uh, and we had uh, both culture and politics. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And so uh, that's where I interacted mostly with C.L.R. James um, and uh, with uh, what later I'll mention this, but in the in my book, I talk about the Trinidad Three, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, C.L.R. James, George Padmore, and Claudia Jones. And now mm-hmm. I want to add, uh, make it the Trinidad Four, because mm-hmm. I want to add John LaRose, because he mm-hmm. was so important
2: mm-hmm.
0: in, in relation to that book fair, which is what he had initiated. He had formed the first black bookstore in London, New Beacon Books. Right. And so for many years, every year, I would go to London and participate in, in those meetings. And so there would be people from Ghana, from South Africa that I would meet. And uh, that would, of course, inform uh, a, a an ideological orientation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the distinction I make between theory and ideology is theory is about understanding the past and the present in finding patterns, ideology adds advocacy to mm-hmm. what ought to be and uh, connecting to people throughout the world. See, the United States really is an environment that is much more conservative and, and, and leans toward the right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'd only really feel this and understand this, from my experience, when you travel globally mm-hmm. and you see that there's a discourse out there that is way to the left as a norm uh, to what goes on in the United States. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And going to that conference and meeting people from the battlefronts of the African diaspora really was a way of making sure that black studies stayed uh, connected to that dialectic of on the one hand, the campus, and on the other hand, the community.
1: Mm. Um, I love this. I love this idea of adding John LaRose to the, (laughs) to the, um, to the group of um intellectuals he mentioned especially because i recently this summer i was in uh i was at the padmore institute um so i was in his papers and um yeah just seeing them as this uh as this place this place where like kind of like the transnational exchange of ideas on black liberation and just black just black um intellectual Kind of thought um it's just so it's it's there all all throughout the paper so it's amazing to hear you talk about being a part um of the um kind of like the book seminars and meetings um and and yearly uh conferences and events that happened um in london uh so let's move to our next question um Last year, you gave us uh, the history um, of Black studies, and this year, you've given us the future of Black studies. How did you come to write this book?
0: Well, of course, the history leads one to think about the future, so there's a logical connection.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But, you know, there used to be these obituaries that would come out uh, annually about Black studies. And in response to that, uh I, I first did a, a couple of editions of a guide to scholarly journals because the uh, expectation early on in black studies was that, yes, you can have black studies, but we want to evaluate your scholarship in mainstream journals. And in other words, it was uh, demoting uh, black journals from serious consideration for tenure review, et cetera. And so we wanted to to advocate, you know, and, and argue uh, for recognition of black scholarly journals. And then secondly, the idea that black studies programs were declining and disappearing, et cetera, that would always be allocated, uh, alleged and uh, without any data. And so I did uh, national surveys of uh, black studies programs in 2013 and 2019. Mm-hmm. And to just bring an end to that. Uh, but now with the question of the future of black studies, I basically just touched very briefly on three points. The emergence of uh, uh, of, of new developments uh, had to be opened up and described as they were actually happening. Um, and so, uh, the first focus was on Afrofuturism. And the interesting thing about that is that fantasy, uh, can be very stimulating. Mm -hmm. It can also be very disorienting. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it can be something that stimulates you to, uh, work toward the future, or you could bathe yourself in fantasy about a future that will never exist. Right. And so right. uh, I wanted to look at uh, both this whole question of uh, how we think about the past as the future, uh, how we imagine. And so, you know, Octavia Butler and Sun Ra and a number of other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wanted to really get to the point where the future that black people have always oriented themselves toward is a future through struggle. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: That that's the main, you know, so black studies has to be connected to fighting for a better future. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And the, uh, but the other thing that's really interesting is that uh, we have to avoid kind of an African-American exceptionalism uh, and put ourselves in the context of an awakening of black people all over the world. Uh, mm-hmm. with regard to understanding the black experience, starting of course with their own experience mm-hmm. and then looking at that in relationship comparatively speaking to the rest of the world and uh, I, I think that you know this is a very important point you know that every country uh, that I looked at I looked at I think 11 countries but I mean and and it, it, all the rest of the countries where black people are, mm-hmm. um, is really a struggle to come into some self-understanding
2: mm-hmm.
0: of their own national experience, and of course, then that becomes regional and global, and and so on, uh, within various colonial systems and 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 whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. And 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 I want to talk more about that. But then mm-hmm. the third thing, of course, is is the technological uh, revolution that has taken place. But the, there's so many things that I left out. For example. Uh, there are actual political struggles that need to be discussed with regard to the future of Black studies,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which have everything to do with the struggle that's taking place in the reorganization of the university in general.
2: Yes.
0: Uh, for example, this whole question of the disciplines or this concept of interdisciplinarity or, yes. or uh, multidisciplines. And it seems to me that 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 whole question of Black Studies being interdisciplinary is really a way to sort of lower its status in the university. Mm.
2: Uh,
0: The power of the university is in disciplines and the organization of resources around disciplines are departments Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and which have a sustainable budget, control faculty lines, uh, are able to grant degrees, Mm -hmm. Uh, All all that kind of stuff. Because the history of the interdisciplinary emergence of black studies is some of the some of those power decisions rested in other departments. Right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the 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 question that I raise is why isn't black studies a discipline? So if you take, Mm -hmm. for example, today, because of the technological revolution, because of what's happening in the world, uh, what discipline today reflects what it was 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. Take English, for example. You got people studying film, people reading books, different methodology, et cetera. Uh, You've got sociology. You've got people who are demographers who deal with one kind of data. You've got survey researchers, and then you've got people who are sitting in small groups observing participant observation. Again, they don't even read the same journals. The point, however, is that each so-called discipline is trying to answer a question. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Sociology, the question is, what is society? And of course, what difference does it make? Uh, And in black studies, the question is, what is the black experience? And there are multiple methodologies, and uh, there's all kinds of uh, value in understanding the other disciplines to contribute uh, just like historians use sociology, use economics yeah uh, mm-hmm. so to me it's a power question mm-hmm. so that to if if we're not a discipline then then we're we're less powerful in the university yeah and so that that has to be thought about
1: absolutely um okay well let's 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 get into this let's take your first um let's take your first point um you suggest in the book that um, readers can understand Black studies as Afrofuturism. So um, in what ways or capacities should we reconceptualize or shift our our current thinking about Afrofuturism to fully appreciate uh, this argument about Black studies being a type of Afrofuturism or being Afrofuturism?
0: Yeah. Well, the first thing I think uh, is that we have to interrogate this idea of utopia,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
0: which of course means nowhere. So, so mm-hmm. you know, uh, and and utopian thinking has always been again inspirational and uh, helps us uh, articulate values uh, and and again aspirations, but. Uh, the the transformation of the world is not a leap into some perfection, yes. But mm-hmm. it's a it's a struggle through renegotiating and reshaping the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I mean, in terms of the socialist experience, it was five year plans, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, with a lot of forward motion and backward motion. Mm-hmm. So the first point I wanted to make was this whole question of utopia. Mm-hmm. The other is that uh, the the one of the tendencies among black people has been to try to figure out how the past can be a guide to our future.
2: Right.
0: And a, a lot of times uh, that has taken our thinking and our appreciation of of traditional Africa. You know, mm-hmm. and again, yeah. There's actual history about this in the Black experience historically. And, uh, you know, so some people actually were able to get back there, you know, uh, when they actually had remembered that generation that actually remembered where they came from. Mm-hmm. And of course, we have reimagined it after that so that there are all kinds of places that are named after Africa. Nairobi was the name of East Palo Alto in California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the Republic of New Africa in the, in the, in the southern states, mm-hmm. in Mississippi in particular. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, the Pan-African movement helped us to understand that we can't get back to the past, but together we can fight for a transformation of the African experience in the world, and that, that is, it seems to me, again, this question of struggle is the key thing.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, and uh, even when you look at Octavia Butler, for example. Now, I'm not a very religious person. So, uh, but I really dig earth seed, you know, mm-hmm. and philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so I always uh, substitute the word history when she uses God. So she says mm-hmm. God is change. And I read that as history is change. Mm-hmm. And so, if you go through Earthseed and every time you see the word God, you put history, then suddenly uh, Octavia Butler becomes a dialectical and historical materialist. Mm. Now, I know that's you know, but you know, the beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I'm the reader; I can interpret how I want to. Mm, uh, indeed. But, but the point is, is that that story is a story of struggle. Those mm-hmm. two books, the Parable of the Sower and the Parable of the Talents. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Sun Ra was trying to help people see something different than what the Negro is supposed to be thinking about. Mm-hmm. But his uh, orientation towards space—and again, that's a lot of people have done that—I want people to be oriented to the now mm-hmm. and to and to the world. So. So the, the, the Afrofuturism uh, that uh, I think it's important to think about is how can black people, in thinking about the future, in positing a vision of the future that we want, mm-hmm. how we can actually fight for it? Mm-hmm. That brings me to the fact that we have to criticize the Afrofuturistic uh, projects that are uh, taking us in the wrong direction. And I would use as an example of that uh, the Black Panther movie.
2: Mm -hmm. Here
0: you have a make-believe African country, Mm -hmm. technologically more advanced than anywhere else, uh, that's based on two problems that reveal its class nature with regard to Black people today. First, the only Black Panther is a royal... Not the masses of people.
2: Right.
0: And secondly, in alliance with the CIA.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) So you know what what is that telling black people? (sighs) Now I went to the uh, Smithsonian, the African American history uh, structure of the Smithsonian, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and in the bookstore there was more books about the Black Panther movie, and Wakanga
2: Mm.
0: than the Africa that actually exists. What a shame. So that tells you something about how Hollywood Mm -hmm. continues to operate winning great approval from Black people. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like candy. You know, I mean <laughs> people love candy, but if you eat too much, it'll tear your teeth up. Right. It works against you, although you want it. Look, I have a sweet tooth, so I, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know. But uh so that movie Wakanga brought an afro-futuristic uh mm-hmm. vision that really was subverting mm-hmm. the actual movement of reality that we face. So anyway, uh, that that just gives you some idea of the kind of, but the reason it's important to take up Afrofuturism is because it became so popular. So I want, I'm an Afrofuturist, Mm -hmm. but I, but when I say that I'm talking about a post-capitalist future, Mm -hmm. which forces me to understand what is capitalism? What are the contingent historical development of black people today? And what are the motions? That help us see that the future is possible.
2: Right.
1: Um, I I loved uh, your read of Black Panther um, in the book, and I think um, I mean now that the next the other movie has come out as well, so I think that's well, kind of forever. I think that's what it's called. Or I don't know yeah, the actual title yeah. of it, but yeah, yeah. yeah, it's it's continuing the same. U.S. imperialism, like aligning black people with U.S. imperialism, and um, there's no attention to kind of like class dynamics. um, So still propagating these ideas of royalty Um, in the current one. I think that there was a there was like a with the alliances with the um, with the indigenous folks um, in the new one. Uh, there was a moment where there's, there was like a radical possibility where like uh it seemed like the Wakanda folks and the indigenous folks were going to like unite and like burn the world <laughs> or burn the colonial like burn the colonial world um but then they chose to go this like liberal kind of like internationalist route um and so yeah so you see that kind you see i mean and, and even with Stanton, like that that was a that was a small moment of the film and it was still kind of like problematic the way that it was posed, but um, you see them continuing kind of like some of the early themes that they laid down in the first, in the first film. So yes, that is a, um, it's a trap. It's an Afrofuturist trap. Yeah. Um, So let's uh, talk a little bit more about this in terms of your second point, which was about uh, history. Um, so tell us about uh, the Sankofa principle as it pertains to Black studies and Afrofuturism um, as you lay it out in the book.
0: Yes. Well, the, 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 the concept of Sankofa is, is, literally means go back and fetch it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And therefore, it refers to the importance of history. And uh, with regard to history, uh, of course, we have to constantly negate the idea that history is just one damn thing after another. Uh, and begin to think of it conceptually. And I think this is really important with regard to the African-American experience,
2: mm-hmm.
0: because we have periods, relatively speaking, structurally of continuity and change. And uh, that, that it seems to me, is is really critical. So the Katsankofa, uh experience is looking at that historical periodization and what we can learn from those periods of continuity and then those periods of change. Mm-hmm. The other is, of course, this whole idea of anti-racist knowledge. The, the most fundamental aspect of racism, it seems to me in relationship to uh, talking about knowledge, is the attack on the capacity of Black people to be reasonable or to, mm-hmm. uh, to use reason. Uh, and to reflect on the experience uh, that they're having. So there's you know kind of a racist stereotype of step and fetch it or the black person who doesn't think, but just reacts in a simplistic, simple kind of way. And I think the Sankofa principle is a principle that helps us understand that black people have always been reflective of the experience and have always resisted and fought even if we have to understand the old Ethiopian proverb that when the emperor passes, the peasant bows and silently farts. You know, <laughs> they, they, in other words, there's resistance at all levels.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, so I think that the Sankofa principle is really important uh, so that when we, in black studies, think about uh, history, which is always knowledge in the present created about the past in pursuit of a future. So those three temporal mm-hmm. dynamics, the present, the past, and the future, are always present uh, when we do Black studies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, you've also uh, showed us, or in the book, you showed us the ways that um, Black intellectuals over time have developed new tools for thinking futuristically, and you've kind of named them futuristic uh, methods. So, um, and some of these were speculation, fantasy, um, and various forms of cultural production. So I wanted to see if um, we could discuss this with, um, in relation to kind of surrealism, because I see, um, I just see some, uh, maybe it's continuity or something contiguous between what you were speaking about when it came to Black intellectual, intellectuals' tools for thinking futuristically, and also surrealism, um, which has been pioneered by many um, Black intellectuals. So how, how do these two things fit together? Do they fit together at all? Um, what do you think of that?
0: Well, it's interesting. Uh, at an earlier stage in our movement, when we were uh, fighting for Uh, you could call it creating the point of a spear. Mm
2: -hmm. So we
0: were (laughs) absolutely trying to get unity around Mm -hmm. what we believed in terms of theory and practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would have responded one way to that question you just raised. Today, I respond in a different way. (laughs) Uh, Today, I I would respond by saying, we we have adopted what we call the 80-20 principle. We don't have to agree on everything, but we do agree on most things, Uh, you know. And so, of course, somebody said, well, suppose it's (laughs) 70-30. I said, (laughs) you know, know, the the argument is we agree on most things. Mm -hmm. It's it's not a number thing. It's really just a generalization. And uh, so anything you might believe on how you interpret the world, the real question is, what do you do on that basis? Mm-hmm. So, uh, if you take somebody like Baraka, Amiri Baraka, mm-hmm. or you take uh, the people who came out of the uh, the movement in France,
2: mm-hmm. the uh, you
0: know the Black Consciousness movement in France, uh, mm-hmm. the real question is what did they do?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I the, the, the. the, the the surrealist that I knew the most was Ted Jones and uh, he was a uh he was a wonderful person mm-hmm. had very critical understanding of the world etc It's just that he wasn't really engaged in organizing and and being engaged in the social projects of mm-hmm. uh, struggle mm-hmm. to transform it became more of an individual um artistic Mm -hmm. lifestyle that, uh, again, like I said, I I really enjoyed him, but the critique is, how does that connect to the struggle? Mm -hmm. And uh, so that would be my my general understanding is that, and and that would apply to so many different orientations or flavors of of intellectual uh, projects and uh, perspectives.
1: Right. Well, the Afrofuturism part of your book is so rich. And um, I want to, I do want to talk, I want to talk, I want to leave time to talk about the other parts. So let's um, move forward to kind of the African diaspora and the globalization of black studies, which is the next pillar um, of this book. So, um, in what ways, uh, just kind of like set the stage for us, in what ways has the African Diaspora framework shaped research and curriculum development within Black Studies? Um, how do these frameworks continue to shape Black Studies? And can you speak to some of the tensions that you think our departments um, or our field is currently having over this, this focus, the tensions and debates?
0: Yeah, it's, it's, this, is, this is a very interesting and important question. First, Black Studies began by uh, using the name Black Studies. Mm -hmm. And it did that as a political statement against white racism. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was a revaluation of the word black. So that's the first thing. But then we have different experiences so that over time, what has happened is that uh, Afro-American Even in Chicago, the Afro was spelled with two Fs by the, uh, you know, one F meaning from. But Afro-American, African-American, and on the East Coast increasingly, and this also is the dominant one nationally, is Africana. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the other hand, on the West Coast, there is the, uh, more attention is given to ethnic studies. Mm -hmm. because of the connection between the African-Americans and the Latinos and the Asians. Mm -hmm. So there is that dynamic in terms of the naming. But the development of Africana studies in part was because of the increase in the number of faculty who are from Africa and the diaspora. And so they brought with them their concerns for teaching about and writing about and their research connected to uh, where they were from. Mm-hmm. Then you had, for example, a new organization called ASWAD, mm-hmm. Association for the Study of the Worldwide African Diaspora. Mm-hmm. And so that's a new development that's different from the National Council for Black Studies, which had an orientation toward Africa, and, and to, but from a Black nationalist more point of view. Uh This is much more of a diaspora point of view. Um, Also, the diaspora was taken up by institutions that did not formally have African studies. Mm -hmm. So in an institution like Northwestern with a longstanding African studies program, well established, uh, they didn't have the same connection uh, that uh, some other campuses had where the beginning of black studies that led to inclusion of both Africa, the diaspora and the African-American all in one unit. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that we have to talk about is the fact that the, uh, general tendency in the world, in every country is that there is a contradiction between studying your national experience And then your study of the global experience in comparison. Mm -hmm. And so uh, no matter what country you go to, the main focus of history is your own history. Mm -hmm. And so the question for Black Studies, it seems to me, is a question of uh, what is the history of Black people from the slave trade on in this country? and then in relationship to the black experience everywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. Those are two separate questions that are necessary questions um, and will continue to shape black studies, particularly Mm -hmm. because increasingly everybody in the world is becoming uh, species conscious. Mm. And by that I mean uh, the climate change global environment is forcing a certain, and, and space travel, and the internet, all of these things are forcing a new kind of global consciousness to emerge everywhere.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, uh, the like a sister who said at a conference recently that I attended, she, she, she said, you know, Black people are attacked everywhere in the world. That's an important understanding. Uh, But it's also important to not make the mistake of thinking that the Black experience is the same everywhere. Mm -hmm. There are real differences.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, And yes, at a certain level of abstraction, we can speak about commonalities. But as you come down into the concretes, it's important to understand the difference. And therefore, the conversation that took place in the Pan African Congresses or in the Radical Black and Third World Book Fair or any time mm-hmm. global meetings occur, like mm-hmm. at FESHDAC in 77, uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're exchanging information from one country to the other, and we're all learning about each other, and we're trying to find ways uh, to unite around common programs and common understandings
1: yeah exactly. And I think most recently, just even uh, with the World Cup um, going on, you see these questions about blackness um, around the world kind of emerging from uh, the message boards and people are uh, trying to trying to just understand these different experiences of blackness in different places and uh, and so on uh, because the World Cup is providing this this moment um, of Blackness on a global on this global yeah. international stage.
0: Yeah, yeah, black so, people coming from everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All yeah.
1: So um, let's let's expand. Let's go deeper into that. Let's move next to the globalization of black studies uh, to talk about these globalized black experiences. Um, you, as you mentioned, you went to at least eleven. Uh, Eleven kind of like formations of Black Studies around the world. So, can you speak to a few examples of how Black Studies is being developed outside of the United States?
0: Yes, um, and this is very important for us to understand because a lot of times we we end up thinking uh, uh, that we are we are very special, and we we don't necessarily appreciate the development of uh, what's going on in other countries. Mm -hmm. There are at least three kinds of uh, countries that uh, I I looked at. One is a country that has a colonial history of uh, the domination of uh, African people. Uh, The second is uh, a socialist country that uh, did not have uh, colonies, but nevertheless uh, had a relationship in developing knowledge for and about uh, African people and then, of course, there are the, uh, the colonies, mm-hmm. the uh, countries that were uh, colonized and uh, dominated by uh, Europe and therefore had to fight their way out of a Eurocentric uh, paradigm. Mm-hmm. So in the first case, uh, an, an example is uh, England. Mm-hmm. And uh, the general approach of these colonial countries is to establish some kind of institution that would do the research necessary to uh, make their colonial uh, administration and their ability to extract out of these colonies uh, their resources that they wanted. Um, And so they created institutions to uh, facilitate the the civil servants uh, and the army and so on. So in, in England, uh, you had all these museums and so on that go uh, far back, but uh, the the institution that has today continues is uh, SOAS, the School of uh, mm-hmm. of uh, that was set up in London in 1958, uh, and then of course the Institute of Race Relations that was set up later. This directly connects, of course, to uh, the uh, Subsequent development, really, it's really after Black Power in the United States that uh, really was kind of the uh, the the bugle that uh, sent the uh, the marching tune everywhere, and so people responded, like in England, for example, the Black Panther Party here, there was a Black Panther Party in England,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and so Black Power became a liberating moment, and so you had, uh, first you had the development again, out of the left, uh, of cultural studies. So Stuart Hall becomes an important figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then another kind of person that's important is Hakim Adi, uh, who became a professor at the university, teaching about Africa and Pan-Africanism and so on. Mm-hmm. Whereas today what you have is, and of course, before all that, you had the Trinidad three, as I point out, and then mm-hmm. John LaRose as well. Um, but now you have formal development of Black Studies starting at the University of Birmingham with Candy Andrews. Mm-hmm. So from the colonial structures through uh, cultural, be it in the community with Claudia Jones and the Carnival, mm-hmm. uh, etc., and then Stuart Hall, cultural studies and the university,
2: mm-hmm.
0: now you have formal Black Studies program at the uh, Birmingham University with Candy Andrews. Now, there are many other Black professors who have Africa and the diaspora as their focus, but Birmingham is the first formal degree. And, of course, uh, Hakim Adi now has a uh, mm-hmm. uh, an online master's program uh, that he is uh, organizing and running. So anyway, that's some of the uh, comments about England. Mm-hmm. Now, about the Soviet Union, uh, the Soviet Union was... Uh, very much uh, during its socialist phase uh, was very much oriented to how can the, uh, uh, the revolution and then in, uh, in socialism in, in, uh, in the Soviet Union help and connect with the rest of the world, the third world in particular. And so uh, the university for the toilers of the East was set up to educate people uh, from the third world. And that led to what was called the Patrice Lumumba University,
2: uh,
0: which was used to uh, educate people from Africa, Mm -hmm. since many of these African countries did not have any higher education at all. And then there were people who became specialists in the studying of Africa, uh, particularly a uh, professor, Patekin, Patekin, um, and uh, created an institute. Uh, For the study uh, of Africa, and uh, one of the interesting things about the Soviet Union is that uh, they had publishing programs in multiple languages, and and were very much part of a sort of global education of criticizing colonialism and criticizing imperialism, and made a great impact uh, so that people like Kwame Nkrumah uh, in Ghana uh, after the Ghanaian Revolution and and Anti-colonial independence in 1957 was able to set up an ideological institute uh, that was really based on a lot of the research that had been coming out of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, and that's mm-hmm. how the Convention People's Party really trained its cadre uh, to to become anti-imperialist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, uh, Nkrumah then also goes on uh, to uh, create the Institute of African Studies at the University of Ghana in Legon. And that becomes very important in terms of two things. One, uh, recovering the past and systematizing the data and the information needed to have a study of the past, as well as the uh, organization of culture. So that uh, they would always go to the villages and find dancers and find musicians, et cetera, and bring them to the university. So there was really an attempt to codify and to institutionalize traditional culture, which was mm-hmm. really village place. And they were creating a nationalization of their culture in Ghana. Mm-hmm. But then Jamaica is another example of, uh, of a, a colonial uh, country that uh, emerged out of their colonial domination. So uh, it's very interesting. They, uh, the British created something called the Institute of Jamaica. Now, this is 1879.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, and then later, you know, some 60 years later, uh, they create the uh, University of the West Indies. Yes. Uh, now, these two institutions then become sites of struggle so that the after Manley becomes uh, one of the first three uh, heads of state,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, he then recruits Neville Dawes out of Ghana, who had been part of training cadre for Nkrumah. Mm-hmm. He recruits him to come to Jamaica to head the Institute of Jamaica.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then the institution becomes transformed and expands. And it's under that development that Rex Nettlefort becomes the head of the dance unit and creates the national dance theater of Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And they create a national museum of art and they create a sort of historical project to recover African, the African heritage of Jamaica. And of course, this, all of this is parallel to the Rastafarian movement. Yeah. So you get, you get a tremendous popular culture and institutional development simultaneously interacting. And of course, the black middle-class in Jamaica uh, didn't really have positive idea toward Rastafari
2: Mm-mm.
0: until you get uh, Marley Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, the development of global recognition of the significance of Jamaica. Indeed. Mm-hmm. So then suddenly things begin to change. And also language. So uh, so those are some of the examples that we have to really learn from this transformation of colonial institutions. Mm-hmm. This uh, understanding of how socialism has impacted it, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the new development of, uh, from uh, local to national recognition, right. but all of it still confronts uh, the legacy of colonialism and the structures of imperialism. Right, right. And for uh, so that remains for all of us to, to, uh, to confront.
1: Indeed. And I think something can be said as well for um, just just the networks that that you're tracing um, uh, in a sense that you'll have you'll have African intellectuals who come and uh, who come uh, to Mona. Right. Or um, you'll have uh, people who are at Patrice Lumumba University come back um, and go back to the continent. So it's like, what are some of the network dynamics of the way that ideas about black studies are being exchanged uh, during this early time, this earlier period? Um, So let's, uh, there's so much, uh, there's so much to talk about with the globalization of black studies. And I do hope that listeners uh, take a lot of time with this section of the book. Um, But we're going to move next to the third section of the book, which is, um, about the e-black um, and black studies' future in terms of the e-black. But before I ask you to define e-black, I'm gonna ask you to explain the historic importance of technological um, and scientific tools to Black history and to black consciousness and to black studies.
0: Yes, and again a very important question. I would like to talk about the technological uh, role uh, of well the role of technology in black history by talking about cotton and the auto industry. Mm. Because what's interesting about both of these is that there was one kind of technological innovation that led to a demand for labor, uh, and then another uh, innovation that led to a decline in the demand for black labor. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So in cotton, the cotton gin, which was a, uh, a tool, to clean the cotton fibers from all of the other twigs and leaves, et cetera, that would be part of what would be amassed once you were picking cotton by hand. And there was a, uh, a tremendous increase in the ability uh, to develop uh, cotton fiber. So it took one slave one day to produce one pound of cotton. Mm-hmm that was expanded tremendously by having uh, the cotton gin. And then when you had a steam put to the cotton gin, that is an improvement in the machine, uh, it, it had a tremendous increase. Uh, every increase in the ability to clean the cotton placed a greater demand for having people in the field picking cotton. Mm-hmm. So it had to, it, it increased the demand for labor in the cotton fields. On the other hand, by the 1940s, you get the development of the mechanical cotton picker that was able to extremely increase the ability to pick the cotton for the cleaning process, for the ginning process, and therefore, you, 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 you basically, the, the mechanical cotton picker kicked black people out of the cotton patch.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So you have that tremendous sort of bookending of the cotton experience, the gin and mechanical cotton picker. But simultaneous with the development of that machine to pick cotton, you had the expansion of the assembly line auto production, which created a greater demand for labor because the way in which automobiles used to be produced is the chassis would be stationary and people would work on that car and build the car. Mm-hmm. And so you never really repeated a task. And it took a longer time to do that. And you had to have the development of exchangeable parts. you had to, There was a lot of technological development that had to occur. Well, mm-hmm from the standpoint of the transition to the assembly line where you could have somebody stationary repeating the same task over and over, suddenly you were able to produce more cars at a faster rate. And that was a greater demand for labor. And then of course, with the more recent development of uh, what was called automation, and now is called robotization with the robots, Uh, you get the decline in labor. So in uh, the auto plants today, the painting that was all done by human beings is all now done by machines. Uh, A lot of the assembly uh, was done by humans. It's now done by machines. So, uh, for example, Ford River Rouge in Detroit used to employ uh, 40,000, 50,000 people producing a certain number of cars. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And now with a quarter of that number are producing more cars. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So suddenly Detroit, which was one of the great middle-class cities of the black experience, there was a black industrial class there that actually began to own their own homes. uh, And for that matter, politically had the largest NAACP in the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now is a town that has the greatest... Uh, single-occupancy hotel uh, with unemployed workers mm. and areas where, where there are food deserts, uh, where there used to be vibrant, dynamic, Black urban communities. So in terms of the technological experience of Black people, we get this, you know, forward motion, backward motion, forward motion, backward motion this of course impacts our politics and our social organization tremendously so we now then have these books that came out in the 60s like who needs the negro Mm. or the choice and by the way it wasn't our choice you know Mm
2: -hmm.
0: in other words what we're talking about now is if black people because of the technological transformation of society if Black people are not essential for production as they used to be, then what is the future? Well, we can see the incarceration rate, mm. of uh, which basically is the warehousing of labor that's no longer needed in the factory floor. Right. Uh, but what's interesting about that is that we now have a great contradiction in the capitalist system in general because the decline in labor regarding black people is simply part of the decline of labor for the entire society. Mm -hmm. In other words, black people are not the only people being excluded Mm
2: -hmm.
0: from sustainable gainful employment on a lifetime basis. But here's the thing about the way a capitalist society operates. A capitalist society operates because of the role of labor in production and distribution, Mm -hmm. because it then becomes the, the wages are a variable. And if you can depress wages, you can increase profit. Henry Ford used to say, I pay these damn workers $5 a day so they can buy this car. Well, if you've got robots building the cars, they're not going to buy the cars. Robots don't participate in consumption. So what you've got then is a crisis. Now, in a global sense, people thought, well if we produce with robots, then the rest of the world will buy our stuff. But the Chinese now are producing more, are buying more robots than any other country in the world. So all that labor over there, they're facing the same reality Mm
2: -hmm.
0: of the adoption of this new technology that is replacing labor. So capitalism is in crisis because of this. Mm -hmm. And because if you can't, Uh, you can't distribute wages, then the marketplace is not the same kind of marketplace as it used to be. And so uh, there's, there's that. But on the other hand, on the other hand, uh, one of the important ways to look at technology is communication. Mm -hmm. And how communication has always been central to understanding black culture has always been central to understanding Black consciousness, to understanding uh, how Black people have been able to network uh, and survive. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, whether it's the radio, you mm-hmm. know, uh, or the telephone, and of yeah. course now uh, what was really interesting is that when the digital divide was talked about, Owning a computer uh, was really the issue. Uh, And black people with a lot of money were basically owning computers comparable to their same uh, counterparts of any other nationality. But the masses of black people were on the telephone as much or more than everybody else. So uh, black people are in the... Transformation of society, but on the telephone, more than with a laptop or uh, any other kind of computer. Mm-hmm. And I think this is uh, this is a really important uh, way of, of understanding that black people are are not inert, uh, but are able to really deal with the technological transformation of society. Now, in in my family, just a family note back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, my great grandfather was the first African American to get a patent in Illinois. Oh wow! And was one of the, I think, the eighth or so in the whole country. Uh, and his patent was of a pan for processing sorghum into mm-hmm. a sweetener. And the importance of that is that the abolitionist movement had a position against what they call blood-soaked sugar. So they Mm -hmm. were against the cane sugar coming from the South. Oh,
2: okay.
0: So they were using sorghum. And so this was, you know, an important uh, example, really, of how our family was connected Mm -hmm. to to the movement. The other, his son, invented what he called an, uh, the autoplane, which was an early model of a helicopter. Mm-hmm. And we actually have, and he got several patents, and we actually have the documentation that the Department of Defense came to St. Louis to examine his autoplane. Mm-hmm. That became part of the development, historical development of helicopters. Oh. So, uh, so there are these black inventors who have mm-hmm. always been a part of the history of uh, of, uh, of technological development of this country. But the interesting thing about it is every February, every Black History Month, we have to bring out the list of the Black adventurers because nobody remembers who they are. <laughs> Everybody remembers Nat Turner and Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth. Mm-hmm. In other words, the freedom struggle has penetrated the mass consciousness of Black people way more than these other firsts that we would all learn about by reading Ebony Magazine. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: The first one of this, the first one of that. So it said something very interesting about historical consciousness of Black people.
1: Indeed. Um, Yeah, it it actually does. Um, And many of these tools um, can be used for liberatory purposes. Mm. Um, So given this historical background, um, can you tell us more about what the E-Black is, a term that you use in your book? Um, and can you just tell us more broadly about the information revolution of the 21st century and how, um, and how you're tracing the ways that it's affected globalized Black experiences?
0: Well, it's interesting. I, I, uh, I so think calling it E-Black is more important than, like, some people want to call it the, the Black code. But, you know, that (laughs) word, you know, I can't use that word. You know, that word means something else. It's
1: historic, yeah. Mm -hmm. It
0: means something different. (laughs) So we we all know what e-commerce is. So, you know, the E is one way that linguistically it transforms something into from the actual to the virtual. Mm -hmm. And so that's exactly what E-Black means. From the actual Black experience to the virtual Black experience.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And what's interesting about this virtuality is that it impacts time and space.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so uh, we used to have this transformation of Black people called the Bintus. You know, I've been to Africa. I've been to Ghana, <laughs> you know, and uh, but that took money and time, you know, and so on. And, and, but now with, uh, with the tools, with the Internet, with uh, the the new normal, we can all be everywhere. Mm -hmm. And simultaneously, I mean, this is a period of history where humanity can be in touch with itself simultaneously. That is Mm -hmm. powerfully going to transform everything. Mm -hmm. We still have some problems overcome, one of which, of course, is language. Uh, But uh, the fact that English is becoming sort of the lingua franca of the Internet uh we suddenly have this ability to now when uh when i was at the university of toledo we developed a program that uh for example uh I brought a brother from uh, Ghana, Professor Nakunya uh to the University of Toledo uh
2: yeah.
0: and the first semester he developed a course uh while he was at Toledo then he went back to Ghana and along with a uh, graduate student, was able to deliver a course back to us uh, virtually. Now, what's interesting is that the uh, World Bank had set up a process of teaching from the U.S. to Africa, but we were very concerned about the brain drain of uh, pulling people out of Africa into the U.S., um, and so this way, we were able to initiate, uh, and that did a number of things. Initiate the pro the flow coming the other direction. But what it was making the point that Africans are not simply the objects of study for other people. There are universities in Africa and people in in, in serious scholarship going on by Africans in Africa, and so reorienting ourselves to learning from Africa just as they must learn from us. Now, what we discovered is that we study Africa, but Africa has yet to study us. So there are no African-American studies programs, Mm -hmm. courses, certificates, whatever on the continent in universities over there, but we have African studies over here. So that's an interesting development that we have to pursue. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, For sure. Um, I wanted to ask you next about how, uh, about digital tools in general and how digital tools can change the way black intellectuals do black studies. Um, So if you could tell us about some of these tools and what you found was gained or lost by using
0: them? Yeah. Well, of course, uh, nothing completely replaces face-to-face interaction. Right, right. Uh, You know, I I just recently taught a course. I hadn't been teaching for several years since I retired, uh, but I taught a course this past, this term just ended, uh, and, uh, the, the zoom made it <laughs> more difficult
2: mm-hmm.
0: and somebody might start eating their lunch, you know, somebody else turned the video off.
2: Yeah. You know, there
0: was, there was some kind of, you know, it wasn't like a seamless interaction, uh, where the perceptual was, uh, part of the communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I was disoriented by some of that and uh, but anyway so the, the face-to-face is it's is still fundamental mm-hmm. on the other hand uh, the end of space meant that uh, people were in the class from uh, California in fact one person was from the University of Washington oh, yes. uh, as well as North Carolina and Boston you know people were taking the course from a lot of different places so that certainly is a plus plus. and I think we have to assume that zoom as a way of collectivizing online discussion uh, is a new normal. Right. it's not it's here to stay. Uh, whatever we call it. Now we call it Zoom. Um, now I personally I'm I maybe I guess I'm old school in the sense that I believe that two things are also fundamental. One is email and that connects to listservs. And the second is uh, the need for local servers as opposed to the corporate cloud, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because uh, ultimately the freedom of the press belongs to people who own the press, (laughs) you know. And so if you're if everything is going into the cloud, then you've got to deal with, uh, you know, the Twitter man and different Mm -hmm. dynamics that are happening at the corporate level, uh, so that you get this absolute control of information and absolute surveillance of all online communication and development. Right, right. Even Even a school like the University of Illinois, we have this struggle here. Now, the Department of Computer Science is producing tools for the corporate world. For example, PayPal. Was a graduate student project here. Mm. Uh, the the uh, many aspects of what we think about come out of computer science departments like the one here and, and elsewhere. Uh, used to have our own listserv software run off of the computers here. All that has now been outsourced. So Google and Apple and these companies increasingly. Are running what's going on. University campuses,
2: mm-hmm.
0: so there's this corporatization,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, even though the innovation for those corporations are happening here in these universities. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm.
0: so we've got an interesting dynamic going on, in terms of where where is the society headed. Right. I give you an example. Uh, we all know what Wikipedia is.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, there is a comparable software called a local wiki that is a use of that software to essentially focus on a community. So what happened is all these local community, these local wikis developed and were being run out of libraries and campuses and so on.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And it was local control. And then this foundation decided that, well, maybe we need a cloud and they just hoovered up all of these local wikis. So they took it away from local ownership mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. control and corporatized it. And, uh, you know, we even had that happen and, and there was a struggle over it. But uh, the the idea is uh, if you don't have, it's a democracy. If you don't have local control and local mm-hmm. engagement in knowledge production and distribution and control, then you're really assuming that corporate domination Mm
2: -hmm.
0: by a few is uh, the only way a society can have positive development Mm -hmm. and uh, and cultural exchanges, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So we really are at a moment. And I think, for example, the proliferation of tools is really partly a question of the transition we're in
2: mm.
0: with regard to uh, how capitalism deals with the emergence of new technologies. Right. All of these different pieces of software are not going to be equally successful. Uh-uh. Uh, it's just like today. Uh, it used to be that cars looked different. Now they all look the same. <laughs> you know, it used to be when you saw a Mercedes or you saw a Volvo, you could immediately recognize it. Today, you can't tell the difference. <laughs> you know, it's like, what, what's going on here? So, you know, we're, 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 we're headed somewhere. Uh, but right now, we're, we've got all kinds of stuff. So then when somebody says, you want to get in touch with me? Then they list about six, six things. You can use this. You can use that. You can, you know, <laughs> and I it's like, what does that mean? We don't need all of that.
1: So um, earlier on in the interview, you mentioned uh, Black Studies, um, uh, like uh, needing to fight for Black Studies as a discipline. Do you see a part of the disciplinarity being uh, something to do with um, do with fighting this particular struggle about who controls information um, and you know kind of where it's stored, resisting the corporatization of Yeah, the yeah the corporatization, I guess, of information, uh, localized information being you know taken pretty much.
0: Yeah, I what I would first see it as a question of uh, standardization. Mm -hmm. Okay. And by what what I mean by that is uh, what bodies of knowledge are we consolidating and codifying that become standard and foundational for the study of the black experience. Mm-hmm. I mean one really good example are the slave narratives.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Another example would be uh, the history of black writing that Miriam Graham at the University of Kansas is doing. Mm-hmm. And where that idea came from is we all used to work together. And uh, what I raised was a criticism of literary criticism that purported to talk about novels like Barbara Christian's book uh, on on, on novels, well, each chapter is a novel she chose, all of which had been reviewed in the New York Times. Well, if you take a social science perspective, what we need is a census of Black novels. Mm -hmm. Then you can actually figure out what kind of sample you you need to make a generalization about Black novelists, as opposed to the few novelists that everybody reads like you know black people the masses of black people read donald goings more than they read uh uh what's the sister's name you know solomon um, uh, you're talking
1: about tony morrison
0: yes tony morrison Um, uh, uh, which, which is i mean in other words we we to understand black people we need to have data that's comparable uh, and then methodologies to study that data. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't escape the census, but uh, what about the history of Black studies? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Is it all about Cornell and San Francisco State? Mm -hmm. Or is there a way that we need to have something comparable to the slave narratives on the 400 or more Black Studies programs that exist in the United States mm-hmm. and beyond. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so I think that when I say standardization, of course, it connect connected to that is curriculum, and uh, but these are these are things that have to be organized within the Black Studies community.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And what one of the problems we have is that, well, one of the strengths we have is the development of PhD programs. Yes one of the weaknesses, they don't talk to each other.
1: <laughs> they really don't.
0: <laughs> so it's, all, it's almost like, what is your audience? Mm-hmm. And, and see, this is a, the, what's, what's, what's a crisis here is that if you're educating people with a PhD in Black Studies, where are they going to go work? Well, if there are 400 Black Studies programs in the country, you have to develop a taste, an orientation, so there's a job market. Mm-hmm. These 400 programs have to hire people. These Black Studies programs have to get jobs for their graduates. Mm-hmm. It only makes sense that that connection gets made. Right, right. Or by virtue of the status of other institutions, these other disciplines will continue to have their graduates hired in Black Studies. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you graduate from the English department of so-and-so university, and because you've studied black literature you're more mm-hmm. likely to get a job than somebody who studies black literature visit gets a PhD in black studies right
1: right
0: mm-hmm. so these these are these are practical issues that uh, I mean it seems to me that that's where the discipline comes in because discipline has to do with behavior it has to do with organization order mm-hmm. even rules so that at, at, in sociology for example uh the job market occurs at the American Sociological Association where people interview right. possible candidates. That's what happens in a lot of these meetings. Right. That, that's not happening at NCBS. That's not happening at the Association of Study Afro American Life and History.
1: No. Right. And those meetings could be a place where, where we agree on curricular priorities within the yes. field.
0: Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and not let the companies who are producing textbooks drive the thing.
1: Yes, indeed. Oh, okay. So I have a better, I have a better sense of uh, what you mean by, uh, yes, by uh, advocating for Black Studies as a discipline. So there was one more question I wanted to ask about uh, e-Black Studies. Um, and that was a question of social media. Social media is so prominent um, kind of in, in many of our lives, but also kind of like in the Black intellectual public Faces online. Um, so how do you how do you think about e-black studies and social media?
0: Well, of course, uh, again, the social media is a, a proliferation of communication devices
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and uh, networks have to choose which ones they use to uh, establish a network. So that's the big thing: is networking and the distribution of knowledge. But again, you have to ask the question: What is the form of the knowledge that's getting distributed,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and what is the sort of evaluative uh, uh, the evaluative uh, process that this knowledge goes through? Mm-hmm. That that was one of the things about uh, when self-publishing became so possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a proliferation of different points of view. And, you know, uh, particularly in the more nationalists and more esoteric uh, gatherings, you could have all kinds of books published. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have peer review, if you don't have some level of... Uh, editorial process then the weight is on an individual yeah
2: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, you know again the contradiction is between to the extent to which to the extent to which uh, the the editorial process of is self-determination by an organized process you know so that the book reviews in the black scholarly journals or the panels at various, gatherings, or some way of collectivizing uh, an evaluative process. Uh, I think that's really important. Uh, On the other hand, uh, like I said, I'm not so sure that uh, most of this this social media is any better than email. So, (laughs) you know, I'm still, like I say, I'm old school. I still like email. (laughs) I mean, I don't, you know, this whole idea of Joining a corporate gated community like Facebook, Mm, mm -hmm. you know, which is Mm -hmm. what people tend to put their pictures on. I mean, there's this outpouring of themselves into this corporate gated community. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And as you mentioned, the Twitter man is now controlling uh, black Twitter or, you know, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen to black Twitter. It's been a it's been a great forum for talking about debates in black studies, I think, for many intellectuals. However, uh, yeah, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen to it. Yeah. Um, so, um, Dr. Kalimat, uh, before, uh before we go, I wanted to ask you one final question. Um, do you have anything that you're working on now that you'd like to share with our listeners?
0: Yeah, I, I'm working on two projects. Oh, great. One is... Okay. Uh, Extreme weather and inequality. Mm.
2: Uh,
0: we, we're, we're starting by looking at uh, uh, one city, Beaumont, Texas. It's very near the, uh, the border with Louisiana. Okay. It is uh, 47% black.
2: Mm.
0: And it's where the great refineries are mobile uh exxon Mobil and other refineries
2: mm.
0: and uh it's also one of the places most hit by extreme weather
2: mm.
0: and w- floods and you know hurricanes and so on and so uh because the refinery workers there uh, sometimes make as much as fifty dollars an hour compared with people who are struggling on the Texas' minimum wage of 7,25 an hour.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: you get a real polarity within the working class.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, so we're asking the question, how can, you know, in this black town uh, deal with this existential reality that they are facing the end of survival in that area? So we recently had a symposium and uh, we're reproducing the uh, the proceedings and uh, we're going to have a high school test, a contest, uh, getting juniors and seniors to write essays for cash rewards mm-hmm. on this question to, to mobilize broad public development of ideas about all of this. So that's one project. The other project is my lifelong uh, focus on Malcolm X. And so I finally mm-hmm. decided to uh, to write my book on Malcolm.
1: Oh, great.
0: And I've been uh, working with, uh, we had a Malcolm X work group, and Bill Sayles was in it, and his dissertation was on Malcolm, and that became a book. James Cohn was in it, oh, and his wow. book on Malcolm and Martin came out. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. uh, uh, three or four other people. Uh Preston Wilcox was in it and he had created uh the Malcolm X Lovers Network. He was an yeah. archivist of Harlem. Mm-hmm. And uh on the Malcolm X and then I did the Malcolm X website. Uh, yes. But uh so anyway, that that is a uh it's a uh I've worked on Malcolm a long time, and uh, so I'm finally getting around to that. And uh, so I'm, I'm, that's what I'm working on right now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Those two projects sound fantastic, and I do hope that you would uh, be open to coming back on the show uh, once those, once those books are out. We would love to have you back here to discuss both, both topics. Um, Thank you. Um, But yeah, I have really relished this opportunity to learn from you, Dr. Akalamat, and I think our listeners will too. So I want to thank you for being on the show with us today to discuss your new book, The Future of Black Studies.
0: Thank you.